And it's just, it's a lot easier just to stay comfortable and easy. That's why artists have such a hard life because we're always pushing ourselves and tearing ourselves apart to get to know ourselves, to try to create something. And insofar as we're trying to create something, we're also creating ourselves. Hi, everyone. This is Sam, NFT Stats on Twitter. And today on the podcast, we have Trey Ratcliffe. Now, Trey is someone I've admired for a very long time. Back in 2010, 2011, kind of before Instagram was even out there, he had a website called Stuck in Customs that ultimately had a multi-million person distribution uh, where he taught people about high dynamic range photography and really just built a business out of being a travel photographer, something that almost no one was doing at the time. Uh, his career kind of, he, he went down an affiliate advertising path, he later, went down a fine art prints path where both became multi-million dollar businesses. And then he later, uh, no surprise, got into NFTs. Uh, he recently launched a project called 1K1K. It's a thousand images from all over the world. And we talk about that project in this uh, podcast. He also calls himself a high functioning hippie, has a really unique personality, really open, charismatic. And, and I think he lets a lot of that show in this podcast. So. For me, it was a real honor to get to talk to Trey. I think he's always just been a really innovative artist, someone who's really been open with his work, and, you know, gives away a lot of content for free, and through that has built a really unique following. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I enjoyed it a lot. It's just so awesome to have uh, Trey Ratcliffe on the podcast. Trey, welcome. Thank you, Sam. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. It's uh, it's a little bit later, so I got my artificial light today. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's been a good one. I wanted to I wanted to start. You know, one, one, I've actually been following your work for a long time, and the thing that has always impressed me the most about you is even before Instagram was around, you were building out a website and a social platform that was kind of before influencers were influencers. You were making a business out of travel photography, you know, then you were one of the first guys to get a drone. I'm not surprised now that you're in NFTs, that you're doing AI. You're just, it just feels like you're always at the forefront of what's next. I'm kind of curious, how have you thought about your, your business strategy going back? You know, you've been doing this for, for 12 years, just that's always allowed you to be kind of at the front of what's new and exciting. Oh, well, thank you. That's nice of you to say. Um, by the way, you, you know this, or I guess people that follow me know this. I don't take myself that seriously at all. In fact, I think that's one of the greatest gifts any artist or creative or anyone can give themselves as sort of the dissolution of the ego, because it allows you to be in the flow state and allows you to be very sensitive to energies and make, you know, good decisions for short, medium and long term. And to your to your point or to your your question is. Something that influenced me very early on was one of my heroes, uh, Kevin Kelly, who I eventually got to meet. You know, how amazing is it to get, meet your heroes? And Kevin is the gentleman that started Wired Magazine, and he's all over AI, and he's done like three TED Talks. He's sort of a futurist philosopher kind of guy. And he wrote this really influential essay, which I'm sure you know about, called A Thousand True Fans. And the gist of the essay is that you don't need to have like hundreds of thousands or millions of followers. All you need is a thousand people that really believe in what you do. And uh, those thousand, that's literally all you need because, you know, not that life is about making money or getting rich or anything like that. Like Naval says, you know, money doesn't solve all your problems, it solves your money problems. But I know artists have a particularly tough time making um, financial ends meet. And there's so many great artists out there. So I really attribute that article in particular to it. Because if you have a thousand true fans that follow pretty much everything you do, they're more than happy to part with their money uh, to get some of your art. You know, it's a it's a, a perfect exchange. And so if you have a thousand true fans and you're able to, you know, sell them a hundred dollars worth of stuff a year. You know, that's, you know, $100,000 right there. And um, so that wasn't, that was kind of the financial aspect behind it. 
That came a little bit later after I started the blog you mentioned, because I got so into photography, particularly the style called HDR, high dynamic range, that I immediately started to share everything that I took because I was so fascinated with it. And I shared, I did stuff that no one else was doing. I mean, I can look back, it looks like a master plan. It wasn't. But I would share huge files, uh, like full res files with no watermark. No photographers did that back yet, back then. And I got a lot of hate for it, by the way. I also made everything Creative Commons. I just gave everything away. And I said, just please link back to the blog if you don't mind. So they spread like wildfire because they were big, beautiful photos. And no one else was doing that at the time. And um, also, I would share my techniques. I would tell everybody exactly how I did these things. I would have tutorials and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know if you remember this back in the olden days, you know, <clears throat> 14, 15 years ago, but people like photographers did not share their secrets. It was like a secret club, you know, the, the old style photographers or what I call the, the creepy uncles, you know, where you had to go to this brick and mortar building to learn the tools of the trade and like a blacksmith or something. I thought that was ridiculous. And so I always had this childlike nature to me. And I, I think about my own kids, you know, they'll sit there and they'll just create art, you know, on a construction paper and a house with glitter glue. And they'll run around the house and share it with everybody because they're so excited. And there's no ego involved with that as a kid. That's actually, I think, what humans do is we create and we share and then we see what happens. So that's always been the impetus. Um, later on top of that, I've realized that this creativity is kind of a meditation. And if people enjoy the photo, it allows them to be present for a little while. So it's almost like a small meditation. And then secondarily, hopefully I can inspire them to create in their own way, whether it's through art or, you know, making pastries or whatever creative pursuit you might have. And then you can slowly move the needle on consciousness and love in the world, because the more people that can enter like a present meditative state, create and share with the world, like the better the world becomes. Yeah, no, that's, you just dropped so much knowledge on us. I'm trying to kind of re recap it all in my, in my head, but that's one thing that's super interesting here is, you know, I think CC zero debate, not debate, but the differences of opinion in the space and the different approaches people take. It sounds like that's, you've had that. And do you still have it for all, is all your work CC zero? Um, yes, it is. People can do whatever they want to with it. Um, and that's still a bit of a crucifix to the vampire to a lot of artists out there. But I generally trust people, right? And like people are always worried. Some photographers or artists are worried about like big corporations stealing your work and using it to make money. Well, legitimate corporations don't really steal, right? It might happen from time to time. And then you just contact them. And usually you don't have to sue them. You'll just kind of settle out of court. I mean, it even happened with me and Google and they were using one of my images from here in uh, New Zealand. It's actually part of the collection of the Aurora Australis. They call it the Aurora Australis on the Southern Hemisphere and Borealis on the Northern one. And it's a really pretty photo, if I do say so myself and I do. And they would use it on all their Chromebooks, right? And then they would sell, you know, like, hundreds of millions of Chromebooks on Amazon and all over. And it was kind of my picture on there, right? Because basically all laptops look the same to a certain degree. But like my image made their laptop look like, oh, that's a really nice laptop because it's got a nice image on it. And so, um, yeah, th so they didn't, we, you know, we didn't have to get into a lawsuit with them or anything. And it was kind of a mistaken thing. And we ended up just settling for an amount. But that's sort of an edge case. In general, if you just give your stuff away, People enjoy using it for their for their backgrounds, for their website. I let I let people make personal prints if they want to. It's not one of our official real life fine art collection prints, uh, but people can make prints. They can do whatever they want to with it. And I find that people are so appreciative and it's a long life. And maybe in the beginning when people follow me and enjoy the work, they don't have any money. You know, sometimes you don't acquire wealth until later in life you know maybe you have to try a few different things to get to that point but they remember me and i'm going to be making art the rest of my life and maybe later they'll come actually buy something from me 
And so all of that free work I did, you know, 15 years ago is now finally uh, paying dividends. Although that wasn't part of my grand plan before, but it just lets me believe further in karma and being open hearted and being vulnerable and just allowing the universe to conspire to help make you successful. This is just a technicality, but I am curious, given your work was CC zero, you still can sue, you still were in a position that you could ask Google not to use it for their own commercial purposes. I just understood that CC zero meant any piece could be used by whoever wanted. Well, Creative Commons has a few um, mini shards, if you will. Mine was um, non-commercial. Um, okay. But uh, however, like everything, all my NFTs, people can use them commercially. Uh, but corporations are not really, they don't really buy NFTs to use commercially. It might just be individuals. Usually if it's a, if it's a big corporation or someone that's, they'll actually do like a side deal with you um, rather than, you know, just try to buy an NFT and then uh, use it to launch some new product. What I think is so fascinating about what you did, and, and like I said, I, I was a travel photographer living in Asia in 2010, 2011, and I always looked to you as someone who really kind of figured out how to make a life out of this business back in the in the Flickr days, you know, before, like I said, before the Instagram or influencer was out there. But I think, you know, every artist is so different and every artist has a different business model in mind and a different brand. And it just, it feels like you found that your brand was in building an audience. And if you build an audience and having people who appreciate your work and those thousand fans, then you don't have to be precious about making sure your work is never copied by anybody else or never used in any other way. It was like, it feels like your business was really focused on the customer service and on the customer and who the, and, and who that person who, who was interacting with, not just your work, but your multimedia, who that person was. Yes. The, our income streams have really vacillated over time. And to me, the art and beauty and love and consciousness and all my hippie woo woo stuff. I'm a high functioning hippie, by the way, Sam. I feel that track. I can, I can feel that. We're just 10 minutes deep and I feel it. <laughs> and um, in the beginning, uh, the blog had a pretty decent uh, following. And like you said, this is back in the Flickr days or Facebook or Twitter or anything. And I got more and more followers on the blog and I started my tutorial for free. And back then, kind of a thing to do was, um, you know, affiliate links, right? And you would get a percentage, like I would recommend this software called Photomatics, for example, which was this HDR software. And I would get like 15% of every sale. And it was kicking along all right. I got, you know, this was early days. And like I had another job at the time. I was doing an online game company. My background, my degree is computer science and math. So I've always been sort of a tech nerd. And... Um, and I had the blog going because I was just loving the photography. And I had kind of, I started this game company and it got to be big, like a hundred people. So we brought in another CEO. I don't know how to manage a hundred people. Like I can manage a team, a tight team, you know, of like 15 people that are dreamers like me, you know, probably like proof, right? And they'll gladly work, you know, 40, 80 hour weeks. And I don't really have to micromanage them because they know what to do. But when the company gets too big, you have to bring in someone else sometimes. And so I kind of drifted into the background. I was taking photos. The blog became my thing. Started doing these little affiliate links things. Started goofing around with uh, Google and stuff like that. And it was making maybe 50K a year. And then I had a fan contact me. And he goes, he goes Trey, I am an SEO expert. So I just rolled my eyes because these guys contact you all the time. And I'm like, I try not to be too judgy, but I was like, I understand SEO. You know, I'm a cop side guy. I know how Google works. I understand the web. I know how spiders work. I get it. He goes, he goes, let, will you just teach me photography for one hour and let me do some tweaks on your website because I think you're sitting on a gold mine. I'm like, oh, all right. What could it hurt? And he did. He helped me install like a few plugins for WordPress that I didn't know about that would help like Google understand what I was writing about. Because sometimes when you Google something, like say you Google you know, HDR tutorial, for example, or like Nikon D2X review. What it would say was like Nikon D2X review. And then in the, underneath it would say like 
learn about Nikon, dot, 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 camera, Nikon, dot, 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 photos from Nikon, dot. Like it would have just kind of this gobbledygook in Google. Well, this is like a little simple plugin that would say, you could actually control what the Google results say, like, come read this uh, review of the Nikon D2X from award-winning photographer Trey Ratcliffe and see lots of beautiful photos and decide if you like this camera. So like mine looked best. And so slowly they would move up and I started winning in all these different photography Google searches. And then, so my income dropped up to about 100K a year. I thought that's pretty cool. And this guy contacted me again and he goes, Trey, I want you to come to Atlanta to this pornography conference. And I was like, what? I thought, well, hey, that sounds kind of fun, but, but why? And he goes, well, like all these SEO nerds go there. It's basically pornography and gambling because they are the ones that kind of lead the way on like getting people to their sites. And he goes, you actually have like a, not that those sites are illegitimate. Well, some are, but like he says, you have a great website that's full of just like, thousands of photos, like incredible, good, long writing content, all this stuff. He goes, you are on a gold mine. He goes, if you just use the same tricks that these guys use, they're not tricks as in like conniving, manipulative tricks. It's just like teaching the search engines how your content is so much better than everyone else's. So after I went to that, I implemented some of the tricks and it jumped up to like half a million a year. Um, and I was like, wow, man, this is, this is fun. Cause I was able to like, do art and do techie stuff. But then over time, you know, over years, like affiliate income went worse and worse and worse because there was more competition and affiliate worked differently. But by then I was much more established and I had millions of followers, you know, five, six, seven million. And um, I started doing fine art. And then so I shifted into like real life fine art right? It's huge prints and real limited edition. And that turned into a another multi-million dollar business, which is I always find surprising. Um, and it's still doing very well. And, and then so that has kind of plateaued. It still does really well. But then NFTs came out of nowhere, like a shadow in the night. And so now, of course, I'm all over uh, NFTs. And I just like trying new stuff and making mistakes. I have, I have no fear. And I know I'm talking a lot about money. So I don't, that seems a bit gauche to talk about that stuff. So I really am a little sensitive to it. However, I do know people are interested in it. And it's good to know, like, man, I've been struggling the whole time, trying different things. Some stuff works. Some doesn't work. You know, I'm talking about the successes here, not just the morass and the flotsam and jetsam of my horrible mistakes, which in retrospect seem incredibly stupid. But I always say, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate you talking about it. And I think, I think a lot of the listeners do too, just because, you know, with photographers and with uh, just art, art in general, I think the business of art and the business of how do you kind of progress through a career and feed your family and, you know, and, and do well is, is often a mystery to people. And to, to hear your success stories is, is super interesting. One thing that, one thing that jumped out at me earlier was how, even though you gave away the files, even though people could technically go print them at home, you were still able to build a fine print, a, a business selling prints, even though they could have done it on their own for free. Is that, is that, and that was through labeling it as official Trey Ratcliffe photography, or did I get that wrong? And if, if, if not, how, uh, how did you, how did you maintain that? How'd you pull that off? Well, I picked out of my thousands of thousands of photos, I picked just 21 of some really nice pieces that had a nice thematic nature. And I made that series one and each of those are only three. And then after three, we sell out. And we made them huge, you know, like some are like three meters or 10 feet across. So they can't really fit on normal people's walls. These have to be kind of serious collectors. And we priced them quite high, like 75,000 USD for number one and number two. And then number three is uh, 95,000 because it's the last seat on the plane. And a lot of this was influenced by 
the $14 million stuffed shark, or I forgot the exact name of the book, the Damien Hurst one that I know was book number one in the proof book club. And, you know, that book is basically about why would somebody pay $14 million for a shark in formaldehyde? It seems ridiculous. And the author is a real skeptic, but he takes it through you step by step so that you understand. So I'll tell you about one of my mistakes that led to that. I would have just a, like an online gallery like everyone else. And I had like probably 500 really pretty photos for sale. And I would price them like, you know, 100 bucks, 200 bucks, 300, like really affordable. But I hardly sold any. And when I would kind of ask people, you know, like do market research that liked my work, I'm like, I'm not offended. As I, I know you have enough money, but why didn't you buy any? And most of the time, the reason is they just couldn't choose. So it's the old paralysis by analysis thing. And so I decided like, okay, just forget all that. I get it. And you're not really making that much money anyway. You're just kind of like one of these people at this, like at a farmer's market with their little booth set up and nothing against those people at all. But that's, that's a hard life as an artist, you know? So I decided to go really high end. And the idea when you get into this upper echelon of collectors, which is no surprise to people that are into the NFT world, is they might buy a print, which sounds expensive, for 75K, and they put it on their wall. And these are off on fancy people, and they got little fancy dinner parties with all their fancy friends. And they come over and they give tours of their art. Because once you reach a certain level of wealth, everyone has nice homes, everyone has like nice cars and yachts or planes or whatever. But the art is the only thing that's truly unique, and every piece of art has a story attached to it. So you know, people would come by and see it like, I want that. And I'm like, oh, it's sold out. But they can sell theirs. They bought it for 75000 They might sell it to, for a quarter million to one of their buds, you know, and they make a profit, moves over to their wall. I don't get any of that because this is pre-NFT days. And then hopefully that, that collector is so happy, uh, they come back and they buy more for, from me. So that was a bit of a scary decision to go so high end. But it ended up getting me into a network with uh, really high-end collectors, a lot of whom are anonymous. There's, there's a few like celebrity collectors and sports stars and things like that. So there's a bit of a zeitgeist thing that can happen. Um, so that, that turned out to be a good decision. That's it. I mean, two, two things that have come up with some of the other uh, creators I've spoken with. I mean, Claire Silver, uh, a, a great you know, AI artist. Uh, talked about how she couldn't sell her NFTs for 0.08 ETH. So she raised her price to one ETH and suddenly everything started to sell, uh, which I just think is such a, a an interesting anecdote. Yeah, and the Claire, other thing- Claire's awesome, by the way. I loved your interview with her. And thank God I finally uh, found someone like Claire that is such a good spokesman for AI. Um, yeah, I, I hear a lot of these same, I don't sell any of my AI art, by the way, I, but I love doing it. And I share it. God, I get so much hate. It's unbelievable. And just the complaints, they just drive me crazy. And uh, yeah, she has incredible arguments about like why AI is good. It's not evil, man. Yeah, I know. I'm pumped to talk to you about AI as well. Because I, I, that's definitely a theme I want to get to because I think your AI, AI work is, is very cool. I'm also, I'm also uh, interested in the idea of letting people who hate on you get to you. Cause I imagine being an artist in the public space for so long, it's something you would eventually grow quite numb to. So, you know, one of the, the reasons I thought it'd be fun to have you on right now is, is you just launched this NFT collection. Do you want to, I mean, you've launched a couple NFT collections before. Do you want to give a, a sense of what makes this special and, and kind of where it fits into your, your repertoire of, of NFTs? Yes. In a lot of ways, mm, I would call this my first like real collection, not to dismiss anything I did earlier, but I like to get in early and do many different experiments, right? Um, I think the, actually the very first one I launched was uh, one with Kevin and I took a Burning Man photo and I put it on foundation. Uh, that's what he suggested. I was just getting started figuring out what the hell is going on. And then we took the profits and split them 50-50. And gave them all to charity, by the way. And then so I was like, okay, so that's how foundation works. So I did a few more there. And then I had an old friend that I met at Pinterest who worked at Maker's Place. He goes, hey, will you launch one here? I said, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll put up some there and see how that works. So that was my first 
collection of like more than one. And there still wasn't really a marketplace leader there. And then I launched some on OpenSea. And in the middle of COVID, when we're all stuck at home, I thought, you know what? I bet people are longing to travel. And I bet they have some favorite places that they would love to go uh, revisit. So I launched just 50 photos in a collection I call Beautiful Cities of the World. And that one did well. I think it's over 500 ETH or so. Um, still selling quite well. And then, so really, this for about a year and a half, I've been working on this collection, which just launched, which is called A Thousand Photos from a Thousand Places Around the World. Uh, no, it's, it's called A Thousand Photos. And a, well, now I forget the exact name. I should know it because I launched the dang thing. A Thousand Stories from a Thousand Places Across the World. Here's your, right. here's your beautiful cities one pulled up. Yeah, it looks like 0.8 right. ETH floor. But this is, yeah, A Thousand Stories from a Thousand Places Around the World. And uh, yeah, so I picked a, a thousand photos and then I have a different story for each one. And the stories, they might be embarrassing stories. They might be like a life lesson. It might be about some weird psychedelic trip I had, a mistake I made, something hilarious that happened, something inappropriate that happened. And so we actually did a, a word count of all the stories um, and it came out to about 120,000 words, which is the same as like a a long Harry Potter novel. And it took so long to put all this stuff together, it, like probably, you know, four or 500 hours. And that doesn't even include how long it took for me to get to all these places and take all these photos and process them all. That's just kind of this particular project. And so this has this wonderful theme. It's a nice number, a thousand. Um, I'm in love with all the photos. So it's, uh, it's, I think that I've taken everything that I've learned uh, over all my past drops, uh, all of which have gone very well, by the way. Um, everything I've learned in proof, in the proof collective, you know, I've just been sitting there soaking up information. I know everyone thinks I'm just this buffoon in there that makes inappropriate jokes, but I do take my art quite seriously. And I'm so committed to my community and my collectors. And I've looked at all the mistakes that everyone else has made. And so I've learned from their mistakes. Avalanche stuff that works. I know kind of like the perfect size for a collection. Um, I understand how to like uh, communicate and connect and deliver with the community. And um, yeah, so that's why I did it. And, you know, it's a terrible market right now, right? It's the middle of a bear market. Who would launch a major NFT project in the middle of a bear uh, market? Me. That's who would do it. I'm just crazy enough to do it. And but if you're going to do it, you're going to do it the right way. And it has to be perfect because if you're in the middle of a bear market and you don't have the right kind of short, medium and long term thinking, and you don't execute perfectly. It's going to fall apart. And I want to like. Hopefully, this is the beginning of a of a, of a new uh, bull market that's going to be coming along the way. And I wanted to give a chance for people to get in early at a very inexpensive price and get people really excited about it. And just kind of get the joy of collecting art uh, going again, because that's really what we're all in the NFT space for, especially inside of Proof and a few other communities in that we we really do care about the art. Yeah, we might buy some PFPs here and there and flip and make some money. Nothing wrong with that. Um, and there's lots of amazing art out there. But I, I was really focused on the art and just making people happy and inspiring them to uh, just, you know, ha have an amazing life and get out there and travel or take photos or do something creative and, uh, you know, spread joy and light and love into the world and this sort of thing. What, what would you say are some of those lessons that you've learned that you kind of brought with you into this collection as far as learning from the Proof Collective or learning from what's been about a year, right, of, of, of having NFTs on the marketplace? <laughs> Uh, yes. Well, one funny thing, not funny thing. One thing I did with the beautiful cities of the world collection, which was the one before is you're always wondering like, how the hell do I price these things? And so those, my pricing was, it wasn't all over the place, but I took my favorite ones and made them like a lot more expensive, sort of like the lobster on the menu. But now for this one, I decided to make everything, uh, practically free at 0.1 ETH. 
rather than like selling Bibles to the choir, right? It's, it's better to like to grow the overall choir and bring more people in and bring more eyeballs in um, and just get more and more people involved with the fun. Yeah. And it brings up a, a hot topic right now, but for, for royalties, are you, um, did you do the contract where you have disallowed exchanges that are not royalty obliging or? I, I don't know. I think we set up the contract currently at uh, 7.5%. We'll probably lower that over time. And I think we disabled um, blur. I'm not sure about the people that did the contract. Got it. Um, but yeah, you know, that's kind of how I keep the lights on and keep paying the bills and people don't have to justify their decisions around their business. And, you know, I think every collector who, as long as collectors know going in that they can't trade on certain exchanges where royalties aren't honored, then, um, then you're being transparent and people can make that decision when they decide whether or not to buy the NFT. Yeah. And I don't think it's really an issue until they becomes like super valuable, you know, like stuff that trades, I would say over 25 ETH or 50 ETH, then that becomes a pretty big, big number. And I think by the time a collection hits that point and the stuff is that valuable, it's, it's already made enough money. So I don't think that the creator care. I wouldn't care if all these things are selling at Bored Apes prices, I'm not going to be worried about royalties anymore because it will have already made more than enough money. And anyway, by then I'm going to be moving on to like my next project to deliver more goodies to the original collectors and do airdrops and stuff like that. Um, luckily, my collections have made enough money where I'm not really focused on that so much. But I do think the ongoing royalty stream for artists is one of the greatest things about Ethereum. And I, I don't want to see that go away. Yeah. Having, um, having sold really run a business in kind of the in real life world, the offline world. Um, although your business has always been online because of the website and whatnot, but how would you say the NFT collector is different from your collectors uh, that you had for, for your physical, for your physical work? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, my, my real life collectors, um, almost do no NFT stuff. And my NFT collectors don't do any of the real life stuff. You know, never the twain shall meet. Now they will come together. A lot of my real life collectors, um, I talk with their art teams because almost I don't have a, a lot of billionaire collectors, but I've got you know a handful, and like I'm friends with them. But I do all the negotiate. They have an art person, right, that mm -hmm. manages their art across multiple houses. Manage. It's like it's like a full they have full time art people. Right. And some of them are slowly getting interested in NFTs. Like I'm always talking them up. I'm like, come on, guys. It's, you know, 2023. Let's get with the program. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess this kind of goes with the last question. But how do you think about this business that you're in now? And I know it's much more to you than a business, but like the NFT business, when you compare that to the two other ones you mentioned, like the the affiliate link from you know, probably 2012, the print sales and fine art business uh, of print sales and not, not now really being in the NFT business. How, how, how is that different for you? Yeah, it's a good question. It's almost an entirely different business. <laughs> it's so much more inexpensive to produce and ship the good, you know, like to make our prints in Germany, just like the raw fabrication cost can be anywhere, you know, from ten to twenty thousand dollars just for the print itself. It might cost, you know, another thousand plus to crate and ship, you know, plus the cost of, you know, all, all the labor and gas and just to move a piece of art from one place to another. And that's has a charming old school effect. I think that will always be in play, just like old books and that sort of stuff. But the amount of effort it takes to get a piece to a collector is hard. And, you know, it's the same thing for them. When they resell it, they have to get it professionally, like removed from the wall, professionally created, you know, mountains of bubble wrap and get it off to the next collector. Um, that's a real pain. 
and no one likes to go through the pain. And also, by the way, some of these, you, you probably know this, a lot of people know this, some of the, the wealthiest collectors in the world, they're some of the cheapest fuckers in the world. I mean, they'll do anything to save a dime or two, right? They, because a lot of them got to where they are because they, they pinched the pennies. So I think that will be an impetus to help move people in that direction too. Um, NFTs to me are so much more fun. You know, they just kind of have that magical fun element to it. That's an X factor that traditional art um, doesn't have. And as we go more and more digital, and we're at this place now where people don't yet have like digital displays in their home that are big and beautiful and inexpensive. But it's all obviously going in that direction. And there's going to be like, you know, one of those uh, J curves about that's how people, that's how the cool people share art in their homes. Because even though we're in this distributed kind of Zoom-like environment where we're all in our little boxes and not that social anymore, people do go over to each other's homes for parties and events and dinner parties and gatherings. That is a basic human um sort of ritual and that won't go away and when people come over they do like to share their art or things that are important to them and put like a crummy squiggle on the wall or whatever and like and the cool thing about these digital displays is of course they can rotate you might see something new every 30 seconds or every minute while you're having dinner and then every photo or every piece of art is like a like a portal to another conversation or another story. And it doesn't matter how interesting a conversation is or how interesting a, a, a set of points or factoids is. The only thing people really remember is stories. And an art, a piece of art is a perfect gateway uh, for someone to tell a story. And that's what sticks with people. That's one thing that kind of just tying together a couple of things you said. Like it's like that story that is so important with the art, but then also that was why each of your NFTs came with a story, uh, you know. And I feel like you really understand that element of storytelling that can connect an owner or a collector with a piece, you know. For this one K one K project you just did, you know, every single NFT comes with its own story that just gives that narrative behind the piece. Yeah, stories are super important. I I learned that from my mom actually. Um, like in the beginning. Uh, I used to just put out my photos and I was like, oh my God, this photo speaks for itself. You know, it's so, you know, again, I was not over of the course. being a little bit dramatic. But my, my mom was like, you know what? People really want to know about the stories. You know, they want to know about you. They want to know about your struggles or what you've learned and this kind of stuff. I was like, no, I don't. I didn't really want it to be about me. And so... But I do know it does inspire people, let people know, like, God, the struggles I have, like the things I've learned about relationships and raising kids and uh, life and business and hardships. And, and you just got to keep going through all of it, you know, and that and that's great because in a way it's not really if you make it more about I try not to make it about me, you know, it's more about the idea of creation where I'm just kind of the vessel and the storyteller. And in, in so many ways, it's, it's like, I don't really feel like I take these photos. I feel like I have an open heart. I'm very vulnerable. And this allows me to channel whatever the universe is developing for me. And then I kind of create it, you know, I'm just kind of, I'm kind of a tool in the hands of the universe. Let's one thing I'm super curious about and is, is your creative process. And I guess for a photographer, I guess what for a photographer, it's a little different because you're not just, I mean, in your case, you are taking photographs and then going to the canvas a little bit. But if you go, like when you travel to a new place and you're on your own and you're going for the first time to Nepal, to Tokyo, to whatever, I mean, you've been to Tokyo a ton of times, but to, to random city, what's the, what's your, what's your process like for, for, starting there and getting the photos you want to get my process has changed a little bit um as i've learned different things and as i've changed and and grown um i'll tell you how it started and where it is now when it started this is back in the days of uh flicker right which i loved flicker was great 
I love Flickr, man. I, I was a Flickr yeah. addict and I'm just like, why didn't I get Instagram? Like, why didn't I get into Instagram? I have, so, yeah. I have like 30,000 followers on Flickr and like, yeah, 2,000 yeah. on Instagram, but go on. I'm sorry. Let's go into the Wayback Machine, you know, before Twitter and Facebook and all that jazz. There was just Flickr. And by the way, you might know this, but Flickr wasn't meant to be Flickr. Uh, Butterfield, who I think made it Stuart Butterfield, they were designing a game, like an online game. And one of the things that in the game you could do is you could take pictures and you could share the pictures. And mm. that's what Flickr was. The game kind of sucked, but they're like, hey, this picture sharing thing is kind of cool. So they pivoted to that. Anyway, so um, a good example is before I went to Angkor Wat in uh, Cambodia, just some place that I always wanted to go. So you go on Flickr and you type in like Cambodia or Angkor Wat, and it shows you all these incredible photos of the temple Angkor Wat. And they're all good photos, right? So I would look at all the photos, look at the angles, look at the time of day, um just kind of figure out what lens they used uh is there a reflection involved you know what's the composition and so before i went i would look at all those photos i would like i'm gonna get the best photo of this goddamn place <laughs> like i'm real competitive right i don't really care if i you know i'm not like violently competitive or anything but i'm like it drives me like looking at other artists. I, it's not that I have to be better than them or anything, but there's an element like I at least want to get up in their league. I want to get something in the top 10%. And so, um, so I would go there and then I would just, you know, go out there every morning, take different photos, try different things. Cause then my goal is like when people search for anchor want in the future, I want to be number one. And then I would try to do that, you know, whatever with the, the Eiffel tower and all these other things. Well, over a while, I got really good at it. And I also figured out how to game the system a little bit on Flickr because I always see these things as like a game. I have a gaming mind, you know, like I'm playing Civilization. I love strategy games. And the other thing I would do on Flickr is I would look at, um, I would go look at photos that did well and I would go read all the comments and then I would find the people that left the longest comments. <laughs> and then um, I would go to their photos and I would just leave them little comments here or there. Because I figured people that are on Flickr all day leaving super long comments, I'm like, these guys got a lot of spare time. And as long as they got a lot of spare time, I might as well come leave some of those long, delicious comments on my photos. <laughs> So over time, I ended up just having the longest, craziest comments on my photos, which kind of helps with the search and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, all that became tiresome after a while. I kind of mastered that game. And then even though I did love traveling to these places, I kept going. And now I would just go hit the highlights of a city. Uh, let me think of one in particular. Okay. There's this little town in China called Li. No, it's called... Uh, Huang or Phoenix City. Okay. Um, yeah, Feng Huang, F-E-N-G-H-U-A-N-G. So it's a little ancient town that's super hard to get to. And I knew there were a few photos that I wanted there. So I kind of, you know, I know I'm awake 16 hours. I think about everything mathematically in a pie charts. So I would think like, okay, well, I'm going to spend, you know, an hour in the morning getting this shot uh or these two shots and i'm gonna get these two shots at sunset and the rest of the time i have no idea what the heck i'm gonna do i'm just gonna get lost and so i usually have a few things i want to hit and the rest of the time i get totally lost whether it's wandering the streets in fez morocco taking street photos uh meeting random people and they say there's this cool place let's jump in the car and go i'm like let's go you know so it gives me a lot of opportunity to try completely new things and find things I never would have found anyway. So I don't like over schedule myself like Clark Griswold on, you know, his European family vacation. I have a few little highlights and then the rest of the time I just like to get lost and meet new people and find something and just go with the flow. And I think I learned a lot of that from going to Burning Man. It does feel like Burning Man shows up in a lot of kind of like your compilations. It feels like a very kind of core place to to what you've, to, to what you've done. But no, I love that. I mean, it's like starting with the initial 
starting with the initial shots you want to get, having a little bit of research done before, and then kind of allowing an interaction with local people or you know, to kind of guide the 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 flow that you can get more spontaneity and unique shots that are that are different from what Google has already taken a hundred times. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. And I, by the way, I'm not I'm not always thinking like, okay, how can I game the system? There's an there's a fun strategic element of that. Really, I'm trying to create something that I think is pretty and I think is interesting. I'll, all artists, oh gosh, I could I can't I shouldn't speak on behalf of all artists. I'll just speak on behalf of myself. Is that Sam? I am so full of self doubt. It's incredible. Yes, I I have confidence and I know what I'm doing. Sort of a quiet confidence, and I think that honestly, most of what I make is not very good. But when I make something good, I'm I know it. You know, they they say like the truth has a certain ring to it. And every now and then when I when I make something that I think is good or I capture something or I capture some little essence of beauty or some little essence of truth, it just feels right. I feel this heart, mind, body, soul connection. I'm like, oh, you know, you've done one thing right today, Trey. This is beautiful. You've captured it. It feels good. And those stand out so differently than just the sea of trash and garbage and rubbish and the burning dumpster fire of all my other work. I'm like, finally, a small phoenix rises from the ashes of my dumpster fire. Yeah. I mean, when I was asked about travel photography or when I would do travel photography, like the two biggest pieces of advice I'd give were one, wake up really early uh, and to only show people your good stuff, <laughs> you know, and I think that that curation process of your own work is, you know, maybe a little bit less for you, but also for you, I think for everybody, that's super important just to <laughs> preserve your brand a little bit, make sure people, uh, you know, you don't have to show everyone everything. Yeah. That curation process is really important. And I remember Claire riffing on this a little bit when she was talking about how to select the best AI photos, like, she was, I, she said something really funny, like, she goes, I think everyone has taste. And then she goes, well, maybe everyone doesn't have any taste. And I, I feel the same way. But, uh, but I teach these photography workshops, maybe one a year for fun, because I like teaching. And a lot of people come in and they have no idea, like, what is an interesting composition, because they're just surrounded, especially here in New Zealand, they're surrounded by so much beautiful stuff, like, what do I take a photo of? And one of my points is that I think everyone naturally knows what is beautiful inside. I mean, we're pre-programmed with this idea of golden ratio or Fibonacci phi, the ratio of one to 1.618. We just kind of know what is beautiful, but it's kind of a muscle that you have to practice. And like, if you go take, you know this, you're gonna run out and take travel photos. If you, get, if you go take a hundred photos, right? And then you just pick your favorite five. You don't throw away the rest, but you just pick your favorite five. That process alone works that muscle. Like, okay, these five are better than this 95. For whatever reason, you may not even know the reason. It's really the very soft, right-brained kind of activity. But over time, if you do that every day, like take 100 photos a day and you exercise that beauty muscle, then it's going to get harder and harder to pick those five best. And now the hundred that you take will probably all be better than that initial five that you took, you know, after a few years. So it is something you, either you learn to curate um, your own work that you create, or you learn to curate, which I think a lot of people now are doing the NFT space because we have to look at so much art. And I think people may not give themselves credit about how much progress they've made. Because now they can look at something immediately and go like, that is ugly as shit. Where they might not have said that before. Before they might have said, that's kind of cool. But now they see it's garish and it's full of these saturated colors. And it looks like it was designed by a committee. That's why you never see a statue of a committee. And then when you see something that actually looks pretty, you're like, oh, that's quite nice. So in a way, now everybody is spending all day inside of a museum, right? Not often were you able to do that because you actually had to go to a museum. But now we're in a museum all day long. So we're all exercising that muscle of beauty and we can much more quickly grok what is beautiful from the banal. 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, that is one thing that's happening here is everyone's getting so much more exposure to so much more art and, and, and people, you know, it's, it's not always like some stuff's good, some stuff's bad, but people are starting to figure out what resonates with them. And that's, that's kind of the beauty of the marketplace here is that a thousand images, different people like different stuff. I, I always like to end podcasts with a bunch of like quick questions, you know, kind of just get your quick sure. takes on certain things. What are you personally collecting? Um, well, this will disappoint you, Sam. I don't actually collect that much because I'm so busy creating. You know, I got a squig, get an X copy, a few other things here or there. I got a lot of grails. Mm. I've got, I got six proof passes, which turned out to be one of my best decisions. And then so, you know, I get to do six grails. Lucky me. And I know the new grails is just coming out here really soon, which I'm excited about. And this is great, too, because it allows me to get ones that I'm just taking a gamble on. Like, I wonder if that's, you know, a people or an X copy. And so I'm able to get three and do like do gambles. And I get three others that I just like love just for the art. Yeah. Um, and I'm not and I really do try to make the art come first. On occasion, I'll break my own rule and just try to get something because I think it's going to be valuable, but not really. And I've noticed that with a lot of other artists, too. Like, we're so busy creating or with our community that we don't always have all the time to do all the research. That's why I love to read your um, reports um, every day. I'll keep the answers short because it's cool. quick. Awesome. Yeah, answer not, not disappointing at all. Uh, Owning X copy, owning some squiggles, owning a bunch of grails. That's a, that's a fine collection. Um, what, uh, best and worst part of having moved to New Zealand? Oh gosh. Uh, the best part is, mm, I just feel like so serene here with the nature and it's got a very relaxed lifestyle. People have a good you know, kind of work-life balance, a lot of outside time in nature. It's not like go, go, go all the time. So I like that. I love, I love the people here. You know, you can't get Amazon stuff overnight. That's kind of a bummer, but I'm not materialistic at all. So I'm not, sometimes you got to wait a few weeks to get something. Um, yeah, I'm kind of a Zen minimalist kind of person. So I don't really need that much but every now and then you know i'm a tech guy and i need something and you just can't find it but that's not the end of the world i'd love to try to get everyone over here i want to have a little unofficial proof meetup over here where we just have a nice long weekend of adventuring and partying and i think that'd be a lot of fun one of my favorite trips ever was uh queensland or queenstown and uh, wanaka uh really beautiful beautiful places okay right back on. to back to the rapid fire questions with yes, your sir. collection you have four special images that people can get prints of the quick explanation for how you picked each one i'm going to put four of them up you have six i'm going to put four up this one and my additional question is is this all natural light but very very quick story here yes uh all my photos um are real you know i'm good at photoshop and i can add anything anytime that's a mysterious place in death valley where these rocks mysteriously move across the desert and that's the the moon in the background um yes we have uh six uber uniques and i guess those those four that you're showing are well they're all some of my favorites and whoever owns these particular nfts on march 31st which is about three months as of the recording of this will get the actual print sent to them how did we pick these six well pretty simple we we have them already printed and they're already in crates and they're sitting in this uh you know that last scene in indiana jones where there's just a ton of crates they're just sitting there it seems like a waste i'm like let's get these into the hands of people that love them so we decided to swap out six from the collection with six of these and these are either from series one of my fine art collection that i mentioned earlier of 21 works or series two of another 21 works very cool so so okay um let's do this one and my additional question because i lived in hong kong and was always afraid to fly a drone in hong kong because i have had drones fall on the ground before does that worry you at all um yes you know when you fly a drone like it's all you can think about right it's terrifying it's uh you know it's like why it's rare to drop a, a live hand grenade because it's pretty much all you can think about so 
Um, yeah, I was really worried about flying in China. I had been um, arrested uh, one time for flying over the Forbidden City. I had to talk my way out of Chinese prison. And that's a story that's in another photo. This one I love. This is called an abandoned yacht in the middle of Chinese government housing. Oh, this is China, not uh, Hong Kong. Or sorry, if any government official is listening to me. But this is mainland <laughs> China, not Hong Kong, which I guess is part of China. No, no, it, it is Hong Kong. Okay. Good. Um, sorry, sorry if I misspoke there. Um, and uh, yeah, so I just launched the drone really fast, got it up. And then like I have, I have my friends around me, so they're always looking for cops or whatever. Um, so I've gotten to be pretty sneaky with it. And I figured if I could talk myself out of Chinese prison one time, I could do it a second time. Well done. Well done. I, when I ran Uber in Hong Kong, I got arrested as well. So, uh, other stories for another time. How about this one? Is the, how long is this exposure? Where is it? Uh, this is on the South Island, New Zealand. This is in, uh, Tekapo, which is, um, about three hours north of Queenstown. It's actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site for their skies. And in, when you're in the Southern Hemisphere, you actually can see most of the Milky Way, like 70% of it. And so I slept out here overnight with one of my friends. I was in a sleeping bag and he was in one beside me. And it was one of those nights where we just stayed up late and just drinking lots of wine, like right out of the bottle. It's a pretty high class operation. And I shot this with a uh, 21 millimeter f1.4 Sumalux Leica lens on a on a Sony A7R Mark III, and it's all natural light except for some of the light that you see there on the weeds. I used my phone to light up some of those. And I think this is a 25 second exposure. The exposure changes based on the lens. If you go longer than that, you see a little bit of star trail, which mm. you know you don't want to see. Um, yeah. Now, are I you a Sony guy now? I remember back in the day, I think you were Nikon, but do you, do you use Sony? I, I use pretty much everything. Uh, but yeah, I'm a Sony man now. Uh, none of these companies pay me or I'm not a shill for any of them. I get free cameras from everybody. So that's not a, that's not, I was Hasselblad for a while, but man, that thing is slower than Christmas. <laughs> All right. And now this, this one has a unique kind of texture on it. It has a very different feel from most of your work. Uh, but what's the, what's the quick mm -hmm. story here? Yes, this is in uh, the Guangxi province of China. And I love to do textured work. And so usually what I'll do is sometimes, Sam, the sky is a little bit flat in China, as you know. You can get, well, it could be anywhere, but I notice it especially there. It's sort of just kind of like this gray blah, blah, blah. And, um, but I see it in sort of this ancient lithograph kind of sense you know there's something about china that feels lithography i don't know why and so what i'll do if if the sky is a little blah um, i'll go ahead and get the composition i want uh, to begin with and then i might spend like an hour or two going around taking pictures of all of the different rocks or sand or walls or leaves or tree branches or or roots and uh, so i get a collection of maybe you know, 50 different textures. And then what I'll do is I'll bring all the textures into Photoshop as different layers. I'll, I'll mix them different styles, hard light, soft light. And then I'll kind of use my Wacom tablet and like paint in like what textures make sense. Because to me, a place is a, you know, this is maybe the, the mushroomy guy in me. Like it's all connected, you know, like the leaves and the roots and the plants and the cliff wall and the rocks and the sky and the mountains, the water, everything far and distant. It's all part of one contiguous whole. Mm. So this is a joy for me to kind of recombine all these constituents into one compelling whole. And has this, has like, you, you've mentioned psychedelics a few times, the mushroom guy in you, has this, has that been part of you for a long time? When, when did you start to uh, start those journeys? I started um, probably at Burning Man just when I had my first few experiences. My, I was always scared to death of doing drugs because I was, I'm 51 now. So I grew up and, you know, where they brainwashed you that like, no matter what you do, you're going to end up in the gutter 
like, oh, deed, which is completely wrong. And so the people that ran my camp at Burning Man, these are two doctors. What year is they this? They know me. What's that? What year is this? Oh, th- I've been going to Burning Man for 11 years in a row. And there's a two-year gap because of COVID. So it was exactly 13 years ago. And uh, so they're a husband, wife, doctor team. And they knew me really well because I'm kind of in the same way. Like we, they said, like, Trey, we think you would really like drugs. I was like, I don't know. I'm kind of scared, guys. Like, no, trust us. We're doctors. And so like, they're all real drug nerds too in my camp. So they would measure out milligrams and all this kind of stuff. Like first, we're going to start you with some MDMA. We feel like you're going to like it. Just trust the chef. I was like, okay. And they were right. And then I started trying different things, you know, and I, I would start to think about my head and my mind, like, a, you know, the doll houses, you know, that girls might use growing up. You have all the little rooms. Well, this would open up new rooms that I could go into any time, even afterwards. And like, it made me more loving. It made me more sensitive. It made me more conscious, more empathetic, appreciate the earth more. And then, you know, since then, I've gone to all the other types of things. Ayahuasca. Um, I did the crystallized poison of the Sonoran Desert Toad in the form of 5-MeO-DMT. Um, most recently, about three months ago, I went down and did Ibogaine in San Pancho, Mexico, where I laid in the fetal position for three days, crying and laughing and everything. And that was great. Like ever since that, like I haven't had a single drink of alcohol. Um, and I've been like extra serene and all that kind of stuff. And so like, there's something about these plant medicines that are so fascinating. And that's the ultimate goal or a ultimate goal in life. I don't know if maybe it's Aristotle that said, know thyself and the kind of just breakthroughs that you have to getting to know yourself and like seeing your entire life, you know, like from age three onward and seeing your whole journey Like, it's like stepping into the matrix and looking at yourself objectively, like, how can I be a better person? How can I be more conscious? How can I be more loving, more creative? How can I show up better in my relationships? These are all incredible, natural things that are around us all the time. And all of our ancestors did this kind of stuff, too. We've become so separated from nature and it's become so vilified. But thankfully, it's all making a comeback. And even, you know, for, for well people, it can be the most mind expansive thing that can just reduce anxiety and just increase the amount of like love, the value of all your relationships and everything you see and touch just gets better. Yeah. I, I feel like, uh, I feel like I hear this a lot and you know, Tim Ferriss just launched uh, an NFT project, donated all the primary kind of sales to, uh, psychedelic research. And, um, but yeah, I, you know, the idea that if you take it, you, you know, no more alcohol for three months. I'm hearing more and more. I do feel like had we had you on the show uh, 12 years ago, it would have been a very different person, but uh, <laughs> you would know that better than I. Yeah, I've definitely um, changed a lot. Hey, we're all works in progress, right? We're all doing our best with the tools at our disposal and the lessons that we've learned. And I know that the more uncomfortable I make myself, um, the easier life is because life is constant change. And you probably got this since you've traveled all over the place. Travel in a way is a proxy for making yourself uncomfortable because you may not speak the language, you won't know the subway system, you won't know how to get food. Like that is real discomfort. So I think people that, purposely put themselves into uncomfortable situations that is really how you grow and it's just it's a lot easier just to stay comfortable and easy that's why artists have such a hard life because we're always pushing ourselves and tearing ourselves apart to get to know ourselves to try to create something and in so far as we're trying to create something we're also creating ourselves so that's a counterintuitive truth to life is just Keep yourself uncomfortable. Try to maximize your sensorium. And not only will you get to know yourself better and love yourself more, but it makes life so much easier, not just for you, but for all of those in your orbit. Yeah. Great. Well, I think we are 
running out of time here, so I think we will end it there. But it's uh, you know it's really just an honor to have you on the show. As uh, as I said, I've I've long admired what you've been able to do as a travel photographer who's just made a, a living out of it in so many different interesting, cool ways. And the thing I just consistently see among successful creators is this great sense of authenticity and just being yourself and being a person who uh, who collectors in the case of NFTs or students or learners or fans or whatever, just latch onto because they know they're getting someone who's real and true to themselves. And I think that uh, you, you really embody that. So uh, yeah, it's, it's just awesome to have you on the show. And I really appreciate you uh, taking the time and uh, good luck with this, with this project. We'll be, we'll be following along. Pleasure. All right, that is it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you would like to help us out, head on over to proof.xyz and click on the reviews button at the very top and leave us a five-star review. Thanks so much. Take care.